When you finally decide to break the piggy bank to sign yourself a tank, it's that's the MLS. With myself, Nick Thornton, and with me as always is Andrew Bates. Andrew, it's been a while. How are you? It's been a while. Um, it is. I'm doing well. This is a North American soccer podcast. We have oh, um, yeah. had a, a wonderful. Uh, I've had a wonderful holiday. Um, yeah, don't project I, onto me. I want to ask you how yours was. I I, I just uh, yesterday flew back from BC to St. John. Uh, I I capitalized on my. Um, what feels like 14 and a half minutes in the Vancouver airport during a transfer um, to buy like a, an airport white cap shirt with the logo in a bike, which was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was my, that was my, my, my incredibly brief stay in, in Vancouver, but uh, I am feeling, um, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling energized after the holidays, despite the long travel day. How was your uh, holiday break? So far, so good. I'm still technically on it. I'm still hanging out in Toronto for another day. Um, so it's been nice to be in the territory of the enemy here, uh, just hanging out. It's been, it's been good. Yeah, I feel like it's been restful, too. Uh, yeah, you got a chance to see BMO Field, didn't you? I got a chance to walk past it. I was hoping to uh, to spend a little bit more time there. I was hoping to run into Mr. Bradley, considering he'll be staying a little longer in the Toronto area. But that did not happen, unfortunately. <laughs> if you if you and we know that you in in your Vancouver time have had the opportunity to to encounter uh Whitecaps players um if you did come across Mr. Bradley what would you say would you would you ask him a question would you like be like nice what you know what? Uh, what what is your play if you encounter Michael Bradley in the street it could still happen um my official yeah, I actually did think about this. It's like, what What if I run into Michael Bradley? Um, I think I would probably feign a little bit of innocence around knowing that he's officially re-signed with Toronto and just been like, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm a Whitecaps fan, so I'm contractually obligated to hate you, but, um, you know, you're a fun player to watch. Have you nailed down your contract in Toronto? Will you be staying at MLS? That's probably what I'd say. Ask him a question I kind of know the answer to. Keep it, keep it light, you know? That's a good one. I feel like, I feel like, uh, for opposing players, just razzing them to join the Whitecaps is probably like, it's like yeah. the, the nicest, it's like the nicest kind where it's like you don't have to make fun of them. You have to be like, join us. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I also thought about like, what would I say if I ran into Josie Altidore, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't spend the off season in Toronto. <laughs> I mean, pro- probably Michael Bradley doesn't either, but perhaps. Um, big news with Mr. Bradley, as you noted, um, is that he resigned as a as a Tam. I guess it's it's it, over the course of the holidays. It's now uh, happened, but uh, it it took a, it happened a, a week or so ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's back, and he's back, um, not as a designated player. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and what is your, uh, what is your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a good move by, by TSC? Absolutely. I, I think, um, we had talked about this before the break, um, when there was questions around his contract of, of just that basically Toronto should do whatever they need to do to keep him there. Um, 
there's certain players that have big contracts that you can potentially move on from. Uh, Michael Bradley's not one of them. And and for much as much stick as he gets, I've seen a lot of talk recently about his um, ability to produce in MLS and, and his um, he gets dispossessed a very small amount and is an excellent keeper of the ball and just has that midfield impact that all teams really need. That's part of the reason why I think Toronto's well, I know it's part of the reason why Toronto's been so 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 successful is they actually have a good midfielder who can. Uh, run the middle of the park like Michael Bradley, and he's not a player you can easily replace. So for me, it's like, unless you have something as good as or better for a very, very good, arguably the best center mid in the league, then, you know, whether it's Tam or Gam or you got to sell some players, like whatever you need to do to keep them, that, that's a key piece. Um, Of course, he was the, the one that was going to keep his... Uh, I think keep his status in the in the top five contracts if they won MLS Cup, which they didn't. Um, and I wondered at that point if we were going to see him back at all. So it's interesting to see that that um that they do still rate him and have that that spot for him. Mm-hmm. It feels like this holiday season has been uh, a lot of the news has been, uh, especially because despite the fact that the training camps are are coming up quick. Um, the the presents for MLS fans have been mostly uh, player signings. Um, what are some of the the, the most impactful um, that have happened so far in your eyes? Um, a lot of the ones have been sort of interleague moves for me. I'd, admittedly, a lot of the new players who have come in for clubs, I know next to nothing about. I know the Revolution signed a young uh, striker from Poland as a DP, like on the surface looks like a great signing, but of course with these types of international signings, you never really know what to think or say because you just need to see them play some games in MLS. Mm. Um, and a number of loan moves as well. I think one for Dallas and oh, Columbus crew, I think as well, Orlando city just nailed down a um, experienced South American center back today, I think, or yesterday on loan. So those ones I'm kind of like, you know, Orlando signing a defender sounds like a good bit of business for them. Um, where is his name here? Antonio Antonio Car- Antonio Carlos from Brazil. <laughs> um, looks like a, a really great signing for them. But for me, the attention is really on Miami, Inter Miami. Right, and 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 they've made a number of pickups. Um, Luis Robles went there. Um, what do you think about their, uh, the, the team they're building? Well, I mean, first of all, it's very clear what they're trying to do in add a lot of MLS experience and they're following a very similar model to what, um, LAFC did is build your team around a core group of experienced MLS players and then have your DP signings that really boost you over and above the rest. Um, some of the other MLS experience they've added is AJ De La Garza, who's been around forever in MLS, um, but obviously still has yards in front of him to run. Um, Jay Chapman from Toronto, who has kind of not seen a ton of minutes there, but he's only 25. He's a great midfielder. Um, and then this week, actually just yesterday, I think, they nailed down signing Roman Torres from Seattle. 
That's an interesting pickup. Yeah. And, oh, with Lee Wynn as well, David Norman, David Norman Jr. for, from the Whitecaps, Alvis Powell, uh, Ben Sweat. Like, they've got, to me, this is not just picking up the scraps from MLS of, of players who were free agents or cheap players they could pick up. They really have picked, um, quite a good group of core players. So, it'll be interesting, but I guess my question, for you back is kind of like, do you think they run so far? Do they look more like an LAFC expansion side or more of a Cincinnati FC side where they're both of those clubs signed a lot of MLS experience. Both of those clubs have had very different fortunes. I think that the, the difference, the, the, I think that one of the ones uh, you haven't really seen the, 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 the blow away signing from Inter Miami, but the, the, um, the comparison I would actually draw maybe would be Orlando. Mm. I think that they should, should be looking at their, their neighbors and how that expansion has played out. I don't necessarily think it, it seems, um, we've talked before that you can't necessarily blame the Cincinnati issues just on the fact that they came in with USL people. Mm-hmm. But, um, Certainly the roster of, of players that Miami is assembling are um road tested in this league. Mm. Juan Aguadello as well is there. Um and so I think that they will potentially be in that same uh position that Orlando were in when they first arrived, which is they look good, but the pieces were needing a little bit of time to gel. Mm-hmm. Well, and and so far um, too, in, um, lacking an out and out striker. Yeah, maybe that's 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 the difference is that they don't really have that Kaká level player, um, and the uh, the of course the big news that came out today was the fact that uh, a lot of people had been wondering, you know, training camps are training camp is less than a month away, which is wild to say. <laughs> Um, but, uh, they, uh, they named the first coach. They've now named their, uh, their head coach after a little bit of speculation. Um, a lot of talk about Patrick Vieira. Um, Mm -hmm. but it ended up being Diego Alonso, who was the coach of Monterey in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a late signing. However, I would say a late good signing like this seems to be better than uh, signing someone too early that is not going to lead you to the kind of success that you're hoping for. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing for me is that, um, you know, he's because he's coming in late, he really doesn't get a chance to build this squad. He gets a chance to round it out with some of his picks. But he's got to move really quickly because he's got, you know, maybe just under or maybe just over half of a roster put together and he's got mm-hmm. training camp in less than a month. If you look at this as a team that, that came in with a sporting director coach structure intact as, um, as opposed to a, a, a club that they had to build it into their culture where it wasn't there already. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if that's going to impact it where it's like the manager has a job to do the same as all the players. You know, and they're in a sense on an even keel in that. 
in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also interested in the uh, sort of like Liga MXification of the league, mm-hmm. which I think, or not, uh, not necessarily like ification is maybe not the right word, but you, it, we've we've seen a lot of partnership between the two leagues, and now, but I don't necessarily think um, too often. We've seen MLS clubs directly try to model Mexican clubs as a as a as a pathway to success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you are uh, in this signing, um, in the signing of Alan Pulido to Sporting Kansas City, who had been, um, I believe, the uh, the the Golden Boot holder in in one of the halves of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and in uh, bringing Lucas Cavallini to the Vancouver Whitecaps, you are seeing MLS teams now, um, now that you're seeing more opportunities for the two leagues to compete, they're also now competing for players as well. Well, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. I kind of see as see it as like new partnerships. I don't new partnerships. That, I don't think the connections existed before. Mm-hmm. necessarily um and i think that i mean yes it's going to mean that there's competition for players the interesting thing to me is that i mean previously not many players were being courted from liga mx to come to mls yes and now and now that those that tide has started to turn um i wonder what that's going to look like for the future of the league which i guess I... to your point of competition I guess it's wrong to say that the club model had never been approached because obviously Chivas USA was a thing, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like they had seemed slightly on a different level. Right. Um, so it's interesting to see how that, um, that pans out. What do you think of the signings? Um, what do you think of, first? What do you think of, uh, Sporting Kansas City's signing? Sorry, who did they sign? Alan missed that one. Alan Polito, um, who had been, um, uh, he is the the club's record transfer. He comes from Guadalajara. He's twenty eight, um, and he was uh, he won the Concacaf CL with the team in twenty eighteen, um, and he uh, was in that he topped the the league scoring table. Uh, in the 2019 Apertura um, season of, of Liga MX. So the, I guess the first half. Well, I guess what I would think of it is a uh, surprise because I didn't catch this signing. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally just pulling up the press release now. I mean, it's great for great for them. It's something that SKC most dearly is, is an out-and-out striker. Last year they really struggled, so... Um, Let's hope that he can bring that. Um, as we know, the big thing that Sporting Kansas City struggled with last year was depth, that they didn't really have a fully fit squad until June or July, at which point um, they really were still suffering through injuries and, and struggling to find their se- second gear as a team. And the the context, of course, for me that this, that this happened in was uh, Cavalini coming to Vancouver. Um, the, the beat on the white caps for a long time has been 
you know, finding issues, finding players to um, spending money and finding players to spend money on. And, and even after the, the transfer of Alfonso Davies, it seemed that um, a, a real marquee signing was not made. It really felt like the club has done like now one thing and tried to be like, look, we did. <laughs> it's, we're, we are so happy with ourselves for signing a single $6 million player. Um, yeah. what with, you know, they, his nickname is the, ta- uh, uh, he's a, the Canadian striker who played for, uh, Puebla and he was known as El Tonk. So they brought a big tank and put it outside of BC place. There was that snarky video where, uh, that the Twitter account did where they, pulled up all the tweets where people were like, spend the money. Why haven't you spent the money? And they just say, okay. Um, and like, that is funny, but also slow your roll a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause even in the press release, they um, were like the sort of introductory video. They talk about pressure on him. And for me, it's important to remember that uh, he's still a young player. And That's true. Although he's certain, I mean, he's been almost single-handedly leading the resurgence of the Nash Canadian national team, um, along with a bunch of other younger players. He's certainly done well in Mexico, but that doesn't necessarily translate to an on-field performance. My kind of question here is that: What do you expect in terms of return? Like, let's say you're. You're Mark Dos Santos. What are you expecting him to contribute in terms of goal production this year? Now, the number is is hard to say off the top of my head. The sure. the thing is, is as much as I'm being, you know, I want to, I've, I always with white cap signings am trying to be measured in my expectations. You know, there's so many. Yeah. How many times is how many times <laughs> have players come in? How many times have players come in and, and you're just like, oh my God, they're going to be a goal machine and, and it doesn't happen. So I'm trying to be like, this is a young player. Um, we're, we'll see how it goes, but he seems like this is, they, um, Axel Schuster said they didn't just sign him because he's Canadian. They signed him because this is the profile. He fit the profile that the club wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he is ready for the, he said he, you know, wants the opportunity and he wants to come play in, in Canada. Um, and there could be a good, I, I think that like, I don't actually think that, um, I think that, I don't, I think that it is a chance to really get excited. And I think that like, as much as I was mentioning, like, you know, slow your roll a little bit, but this could really be something that works out. The could for me is whether or not he, is paired with a, a player that can provide service. That's the thing is that the Whitecaps so many times have sent promising attacking players to the moon alone. Um, mm-hmm. and he doesn't, that is, will not necessarily work for him. Now, if you paired him with, say, a player that had been on the market, like Julian Gressel, yeah. I think that the, I think the two of those people, um, could do great things together. If, um, if Imbom comes back and he is an improved, you know, play, improved in a playmaking role, that could be really great. 
the key is going to be the linkage. So I don't necessarily want to say like one goal, but I'm like, the, the thing is, I think that if at least one other midfield piece, just like you were talking about with Bradley, the importance of midfielders, if there's one other midfield piece that comes in, um, I think that it could be really promising. Mm-hmm. And, 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 can... and we won't talk, we won't talk about his production as much as like we would say, Oh man, the Whitecaps have such a potent attack this year overall. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the, uh, what do you think about potentially what his, uh, what his future could be? No, I mean, I'm sort of just digesting all that stuff. It's a lot of, of different things to consider. I mean, I, and I get like, I'm asking you a kind of an impossible question just to <laughs> elicit, uh, a strong response, but I think this is a question that people are going to ask is that, you know, what is reasonable to expect from him? Yes, there's lots of other pieces, but let's say, I mean, for me, Inbaum's not going to be the playmaker. We've seen his effectiveness as a deep sitting midfielder that can control the pitch, almost similar, similar to a Michael Bradley type that is splitting lines, um, controlling the play and setting up goals, but maybe setting them up from deeper in the park. But we still don't really have an out-and-out number 10 that's going to support our striker. So let's assume they bring in somebody else to do that role, and the linkage is good. What is reasonable to expect in terms of his goal production? Um, Obviously, in the first year, I think most people are going to say, well, we just need to see what happens, and whatever we get, maybe his second year will be better, and he'll continue to improve at the club. I think he's 25 or 26 I think he just turned 26. So he's a good age. Um, you know, he's a couple of years away from his prime, probably. Um, but that being said, I think about, I mean, I'm forced to think about you know, players like Freddie Montero that are, should be in their prime and should have scored a boatload of goals and didn't. Um, I think about, Kai Kamara, who scored 14 goals for the Whitecaps and at a considerably lower price that we sent away to Colorado Rapids and did the same same amount of goals there, which is 14 in a year, um, and almost exactly the number of games played. So for me, the number's actually probably around, if he can't at least hit 14 goals in a season, for me, this is a really big bust of a signing um, and that we need to see production, not talk. Because we've, as you said, we've had player signings like this before that are supposed to be the right profile and supposed to be um, goal machines. Now we finally have our goal machine. I think he's undoubtedly the best striker signing that we've had in terms of potential, but we need to see that potential translate into actual goals. So I'm going to say that like my goal for him is is at least 14 goals and anything lower than that. I mean, of course he gets time to develop and will hopefully continue to improve with the Whitecaps, but if he can't get over that sort of crucial like 12 or 13 goal minimum that I think any good striker in MLS should be hitting each year, then I I see it as as a really big um, question mark over how the Whitecaps are going to solve things because... He can't be the sole answer to the problems because the lack of a striker has not been the biggest problem with the Whitecaps. It's been one of the biggest problems, but there's other things that they need to solve. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, the when you when you say that kind of fourteen number, um, it makes me think of the fact that like, and and you know as obviously this is a league that's a lot of, has a lot of parity in it, but I think that sometimes you can you can get a sense for like where a, a team is at contending wise by um, like how many goals the top scorer has versus like the rest of the league. Mm-hmm. And like that 14, like you're saying with, with Kai Kamara, like the White Cats have not enjoyed the success that people have wanted them to have. And they've had um, basically strikers where it's like the best you can hope for is that they push 14 or 16 or 18 when the the, the top strikers in the league are scoring 30. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm just sort of looking back through the years at what our uh, highest goal scorers were able to achieve, and it's just reminding me what terrible years 2015 and 2016 were. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the high watermark here is 13 goals in a season, at least in the MLS era, uh, with Freddie Montero. So for me, I, I think that's got to be the bar. Um and, oh, well, I mean, obviously Camilo scored. <laughs> Camilo holds that record, sorry. Right. Sorry. Um, right, but, I'm yeah, sort of thinking, like, like more recent more recent season. strikers. I'm not expecting Cavallini to come in and score 22 goals in a season. Not in his first season. I would like it if he could break that record. <laughs> right. Like, um, last year, last year Montero in the league, Montero had eight and Reina had seven. Yeah. And that was as far as, as it got. Yeah. And then if we look at, um, you know, I'm, I'm not expecting Cavallini to come in and have the immediate impact that a Carlos Vela type would or the consistency of somebody like Josie Altidore. Uh, I, I just I think that the expectations, this isn't just my expectations. I think this is what most fans are going to expect, that if he's not scoring a goal every other game, um, it's not going to take too many months before people start to really pile the pressure on. And the club has a lot of rebuilding to do in in terms of on and off field faith. I've been thinking about the way that you describe this pressure, and and from the moment that you talk about it, I think that like, and and how you measure like him as a signing or not, because I am a little more cautious about whether or not I would be disappointed or appointed in him because he is that <laughs> yeah. young player. I yeah. think the pressure is less on him than the Whitecaps. In the sense mm. that we've talked about in terms of like, well, you know, you should be judged on whether or not the things that you did were successful as a team, yeah. right? Like yeah. in, in past years, the, the caps, certain caps managers have, you know, responded to criticisms by being like, oh, well, formation isn't everything. Well, it's like, well, you didn't win. So you can't say that you're. <laughs> it's not <laughs> nothing either. <laughs> Right? Like, like, I feel like that's the thing where it's like, I'm not going to be, if, if he doesn't hit 14, I'm not going to say, oh, Lucas Cavallini wasn't the player we thought he was. No, I'm going to say not. that the Whitecaps failed to deliver on what they promised with this, like, you know, gigantic presentation that they have made of this player and, and what they said they've signed this player to do. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's really fair. And, and I should be clear that like, it's, I agree, the pressure isn't necessarily on him, the pressure is on the club that um, Cavallini is coming in with a lot of good graces and, and goodwill towards him, which will can only help benefit the club um, towards the fan base. That being said, you know, the the Whitecaps have not enjoyed a large base of diehard fan support. And in order to attract people to games, which is the big the attendance was abysmal last year, um, they need production. You know, just... Uh, I would say that Cavallini's not even a big-name signing for most people. Um, for Whitecaps fans, absolutely. For casual soccer fans a little bit like it's notable um but that being said people are going to be looking for the proof of it rather than just say oh the white caps went out and finally spent a lot of money like that for me is is really a that's a news story that will make people's ears perk up but the the sheen off of wears off of that pretty quickly that makes a lot of sense um one of the other interesting ones a little pieces of player news I've felt this offseason is um, the the will he or won't they or will he or won't he uh, with Nicholas Benazet of Toronto. Yeah. Now, have you uh, have you heard about this um, this contract provision that he had? No, I haven't. I, I just saw some tweets where he was kind of thanking the town of Toronto. Um, and almost doing a sort of farewell, even though he was still technically in negotiations with his contract um, with TFC. So his loan is up, and and I don't know. I think that one of the 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 themes of him, as we've saw seen him, is to see him do wonderful things for the team, and then go, wait, who is this guy? When did he show up? And, yeah. And ultimately, they got him on this this cheap deal. And I'm trying to figure out where I saw this, um, but the uh, the suggestion is that if he played six, if he played four times, or if he played, I can't remember exactly what it was. I think some of the lack of familiarity is there was a starting, there was there was like a, a contract provision tied to the amount of times he started, and he started three times, and then they didn't start him again for the last three games of the season, and then they started him in every playoff game. I think yeah. that, that TFC was using him, the, or in an analysis of that strategy, if it were to be accurate, would be that he was used essentially as a rental player. Yeah. Um, and that as much as he would have loved, it seems like he would have loved to stay, um, maybe the price is not what TFC is willing to pay. It's an interesting... It's an interesting look because I don't necessarily like I understand the need to get a deal, but mm -hmm. they haven't TFC nece haven't necessarily brought in a player to replace what he brought and he was successful. So unless the price would just be um unless the price would be like too much um prohibitive, I don't know if you if you had a player that was successful why you would why you would work so hard to make sure that you didn't buy them I mean it could be a lot of things right I mean we're only seeing one side of it um attitude and personality is always a big 
thing for players about, mm-hmm. about how they're going to fit into the team and what kind of attitude they'll bring to the locker room. Greg Vanny is also an extremely demanding coach. And I mean, I know it sounds like kind of a cliche to say about any coach of any soccer team to say they're demanding, but he has very high expectations of player output. And considering they just spent a, a whack load of money on keeping Michael Bradley, I think they're probably looking around to say, well, but yes, he was successful, but are there other options they could get for cheaper that would be as productive? And you would have to think that they're they're making other looks, right? I, I don't think there's many clubs that are making a decision that are just based on the player's performance. They also have to look at, well, what are the other pieces that might be available to them that could be as good as or better, but cheaper? And this is a player that they brought in on loan. That, that he may have been a renta player, but he was a pretty expensive renta player. <laughs> so with those types of loan moves, I think you do have to uh, evaluate on more than just like, okay, were they effective? But we tend to have the idea that if a player or indeed a coach um, kind of has a successful loan spell, that they deserve an, a contract. But that's not necessarily how the clubs are approaching it. Um they may have not expected him to do as well as he did, and they might be very pleased that he did as well as he did. It doesn't mean he was ever a part of their long-term plans. That's unfortunate for the player, but that's also the reality in a calorie-sapped, a, a calorie sapped, a salary-capped league. Maybe they're calorie-sapped, too. Mm-hmm. There was the, there's also, it's also worth evaluating whether or not he actually was a success. You know, people are saying... He had eight appearances, and there was a uh, somebody on Twitter that was saying he had eight. Uh, Corey Brady on Twitter says he made uh, eight appearances and scored two goals, just like Eric Hasley, Isinakri, Jima Ferran. Uh, Eric Hasley had eight and two. Um, Nakajima Ferran had seven and two. Hercules Gomez had eight and eight and one. Tyler Rosenland had eight and one, and and. I get that, but also they were two great goals, first of all. Mm-hmm. And, um, there wasn't a lot of time in which to, uh, in which to compare it. And he's saying, so the, where this all comes from is, um, a, uh, an interview that he did with, um, a website called Liga Maroc mm-hmm. is where he, he introduced this idea that, that, um, his loan would have been permanent if he started six games, he started five. Mm. Which seems like naive from the player to think if he started one more game. I mean, unless that, oh, oh sir, that was built into his contract. Yes, yes. So it was like, so it would have been, he would have yeah, been automatically yeah. signed. I think that to me tells you all you need to know about the club's intention then. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, these things don't happen by accident. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, that there's your answer. <laughs> Is there anything else with players that you're interested in that, uh, that happened? Um, there's not too, too much, just really quickly. A couple of things. Um, it, uh, looks like Leandro Gonzalez Perez is out from Atlanta. He's moving to Tijuana. Um, that seems to be confirmed. I don't think, I don't know if it's been officially confirmed by Atlanta yet, but I think it's safe to say that one's happening. So that's a big hole for them. Although we know he's been, uh, 
a heated player at times, so, but certainly uh, an on-field presence they're going to miss. And then the Julian Gressel saga continues. There's still no confirmation about what will happen there. He's searching for a much bigger contract than his current one that only has him making about 130000 a year at Atlanta. Um, but it, the latest that I can find anywhere is that there's maybe still a trade going on or a, some transfer within the league, but Atlanta's going to be seeking a huge amount of money for the player, which is such an MLS problem that you've got a, a brilliant player, a domestic player, but you can't, you don't want to, or you can't afford to pay them what they're asking for. So then you end up basically having to ship them off to a rival, assuming that a rival is going to be able to afford your monstrous transfer expectations. What do you uh, think? What What do you think? And, and I assume that the issue here is is salary and not Gamatam, because yeah. Because people must have clubs must have those you know stocked up in abundance, but um the with him, I think that he is very underrated in terms of his contributions to Atlanta and their success over the last few seasons. Like I think that because of that domestic player status, you know he maybe isn't as rated as highly as um as, as some of his compatriots. However, um. I wonder what you think the price is at which he stops being a smart deal. Is it 300,000, 400,000, a million? Um, in what, terms of his fee what do you think salary? is the fair price? Salary. Salary? Well, it sounds like he's asking for, um, at least what I could find was somewhere in the region of half a million or more. I think that's um, fair. I think so too. I mean, it's a lot, but uh, the quote that I could find from him is sort of saying like that would be life changing for him and his family. And I think it's really important to remember that about domestic players is that they're on these pitiful little contracts that are, you know, this is their livelihood and, you know, they're probably hoping for at least a 10 year career and maybe it goes longer, but Sometimes it doesn't, um, especially with injuries. You you never know when you're you might be taken out of the game completely. So a player of this caliber, I feel like it, it's fair for him to be looking in the five hundred thousand dollar mark for a salary. I think much more than that, it stops being a good deal. Um, I don't think Atlanta has rated him low in terms of his output and contributions. The interesting thing will be what club would be willing to shell out that kind of salary for him mm -hmm. um and i hope this isn't just my vancouver pie in the sky dreaming but for me he fits checks all the boxes of a type of player we desperately need um and can probably afford to take on it's considering the amount of money that we've been we've spent on players in the past if you look at the Brexhays and the Felipes and the Juarezes that have made an obscene amount of money and contributed not so much. <laughs> uh, you'd have to think that that would be a smart move. Um, we know DC United has some money to play with, I think, still in their salary. Um, the Red Bulls as well. So there's lots of places he could go. Um, 
I would expect that he'd probably stay within MLS, but um, it's also possible he looks overseas and there, there's a, a European club that is willing to to shell out uh, a relatively princely sum for the player. That's fair. And I think but the he... big question for Atlanta will be: Can they, if they can't get a decent transfer fee for him, then they're just not going to bother, and then they they really are in a quandary of, well, we're going to have to pay the player a ton of money to keep him, or let him go for virtu- for what we think is way less than we deserve. Um, they should. Uh, Newcastle should start signing all of the other players from Atlanta and just become Atlanta. I uh, couldn't hurt their current fortunes. <laughs> I think also, that would... we we must we must give a little shout out to Miggy's first goal for Newcastle United. It's been it's been a long time in the making, but congratulations to him for his first Premier League goal. I think I've mostly been hearing good things out of him, and I know that the um, I know that it takes a takes a while, but I mean his value is not necessarily measured in goals, anyways, and it wasn't for Atlanta. No, and from what I've heard from a couple of Newcastle fans, he's been one of the brighter spots for an otherwise not so bright team regardless of goal output but it's nice he's got that one off his back absolutely um the um some of the other ones there is uh chicago has a coach rafael wiki who mm-hmm. i understand worked in the u.s um youth setup mm-hmm. so that's uh that's a that's a good move for them as they look to sort of move forward did we already talk about Oscar Perea being in it, Orlando? I I have a feeling that that might have happened. I think we did, yeah. Um, the MLS schedule came out, and I gotta tell you, it bothers me. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is, I guess, the in order to uh, um incorporate the two teams. The two new teams, they're building it based on this idea that we're, the schedule is now going to be truly unbalanced. Um, and it was unbalanced mm-hmm. already in terms of all the clubs don't play all the other clubs. But now um, each team is going to be playing, is not going to be playing three teams from the other conference in addition mm-hmm. to everything. And I think that sucks. Um Nashville is a Nashville yeah. Inter is in the east and Nashville is in the west is is the part of the, is the setup and I just think that like the idea at first like I'm I know this must be true in other leagues that there are some teams that don't play but but you're in the same if it's major league baseball they like technically mm-hmm. are supposed to be two different leagues this is the same league you know like mm-hmm. <laughs> It's major league soccer and it's like, it's a community of clubs and a community of fans. And this year you're just not going, certain teams are just not going to run into them. And we're going to compare the, um, we're going to compare the performance of teams in the table, um, when some of them played Atlanta and some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them played out, like who's going to be the lucky person that gets to, like, Avoid the league champions. Yeah. Truly. Um, one, I mean, like, Nashville's just going to get hammered <laughs> by their travel schedule as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, I agree. The, the schedule is super disappointing. Um, the the more appointing thing about it was that I remembered that I didn't buy season's tickets this year. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's the, the 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 full schedules are out. There are thirty four games in the regular season, seventeen home matches, seventeen away matches. You each intra conference, uh, each team plays uh, someone in its own conference twice, and then they play um, the other ten regular season matches will go against teams from the opposing conference. Mm-hmm. Um, we also now know. That we're going to have uh, another team in the family coming up with uh, with Charlotte. Yep. MLS, MLS, MLS had a baby and named it Charlotte. Charlotte is in. So North Carolina now has their team confirmed. Um, they'll be joining in 2021. And uh, the league continues to ever grow. So that's it right now for announcements. That was the final spot, right? I think there's one more. Am I we wrong? Got Saint Louis and, we got St. Louis and Sacramento <laughs> filling the others. That's right. And Austin is coming up too. Yeah. And that was those were the final four spots, I think, for this iteration of the expansion. Maybe. Um It's interesting. The I've heard people say that basically like the as as long as the expansion fee grows, and the expansion fee here was ridiculous. Like two hundred and forty million. Um, and I've heard like concerns that essentially the, the structure of the league is built around <laughs> accepting these new, like that's the league's revenue source, this new teams. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to maintain that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's going to be really interesting to see how this shakes out over the next few years. Um, yeah, because the the fee has just become so astronomical to to think uh, and expect a club to be able to rake in the kind of money that it needs to just to pay for itself is is pretty enormous. The um, I just think that like you by continually bringing in new clubs, you have to develop your existing cast of characters eventually. And the league has already been through so much change and there's going to be so much more change coming. There, there has to be, you have to look, I would hope for uh, a period of at least five years without any new clubs coming in mm-hmm. sometime soon. I don't know when that would be, but, uh, but once you hit a certain number, I feel like there's just harm that you can do by keep doing it. Um, yeah. There was also this issue of um, thinking of the, the worth of teams. Um we, I think we previously mentioned that uh, Olympic Lyonnais, the um, one of the the dominant women's teams in Europe, was in talks to buy uh, Rain FC. Mm-hmm. Um, they have done that. Um, I think the thing that blew me away with it is that it was they were being va- uh, the team was valued at three point five million, which mm. um, goes to this um, to this argument that that I've seen in a a piece for SB nation. That's just like so many teams are sleeping on women's soccer and the opportunities that exist in women's soccer right now. Um, because it's so financially easy to become the best team in the world right now. Like Sam Kerr signing for Chelsea was, this is where it was. It was a piece by Kim McCauley in November when Sam Kerr signed with Chelsea. But if you think about, how inexpensive it is. You can buy the best women's player in the world right now for half a Lucas Cavallini. 
You get by the team of that player. Yeah. Not just you buy the player, you buy the team of that player for for that amount. And, mm-hmm. and I'm very happy for the rain. I want to see other corporate groups step up because as, as exciting as it is to see that purchase and, and to see a, a, an organization in the, the, the family that owned it um, did their best to find a home for it. And this is an organization that is well known for its um its dedication to women's football and in how well that team has gone but i need to mm-hmm. i wish there was this i wish there was the second one yeah. it would be great i would love it if it was some other team other than leon because we know they're we know they're good at it yeah and i mean credit to them but you gotta think they can easily sell three million dollars in rapino jerseys so <laughs> Pino, sorry. Um, the other big news this week is that, um, and I, I definitely saw some from some people when the the Lucas Cavallini news hit that they found it still hard to celebrate or or to get excited about it without um without any knowledge of what was going on with the Whitecaps's um external review of. Uh, allegations related to women's players in 2008, which were the subject of mm-hmm. significant uh, protests um, earlier this year. Uh, that review has come out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting reading. The um, I think that some of the, the, the top line items are that uh, the... Um, they say that the Whitecaps essentially did not have any policies to deal with the allegations of uh, improper texting and, and improper behavior that were being made. Um, and they they tried to find the best practices to deal with it. And the, the report quoted it as saying that they didn't cover anything up and that they didn't have a responsibility to um, to prevent the coach from coaching next. Um, this has had some interesting response. This has had some interesting response. Um, Mm -hmm. do you want to talk? We've, uh, we've done an interview on this. Do you want to talk a little bit about your feeling about the report before we go to the interview? Yeah, like, I guess, I mean, obviously you and I have talked about this quite a bit off air, um, both in terms of when is the report going to arrive? When the report arrived, okay, we need to sit down and look at this. How do we want to deal with this? Um, what what now? What next? Um, does this report really tell us that much? And of course, we're dealing with it from multiple angles. Of course, in terms of how we've covered the story or tried to talk about it in a way that we can help um, make it clearer for people who maybe don't haven't followed it as closely or don't understand. And at the same time as fans who have felt a good degree of goodwill drain from our support of this organization and club because of the allegations and the way that the Whitecaps have dealt with them. So for me, it all kind of turns a bit soupy in my brain about, you know, having read the report now, sat on it for a while, listened to your interview. Um, I, I'm really just kind of left with a, a lot more questions, <laughs> I guess. So um, I'm kind of content to for us to jump into the interview because I think that that will help people understand a little bit more about the report itself and how it was conducted. 
um, which I think is really important to understanding kind of where the club is at right now. Yeah, so we um, we have had the opportunity to have a conversation um, with uh, a partner at the Sport Law and Strategy Group who uh, who conducted this report, um, or the the group conducted this report, Dina Bellarache. Um, and so we would like to play a little bit of that for you now. Uh, my name is Dina Bell Larache, and my position is partner, one of two partners with the Sport Law and Strategy Group. Right, and that's the group that produced the Safe Sport and HR Practices Review for the Vancouver Whitecaps that was just uh, was submitted to them and just released this week. That's correct. Um, one of the questions that I sort of had and I think has been part of the reaction to this report um, is I think that for a long period of time this year, um, it's been something that people have been waiting for and and have maybe different uh, expectations of. And I wanted to sort of get your take on who is this report for? Is it for the public to determine exactly what happened or for the players in the public? Is it a, is it a policy exercise to sort of no more narrowly narrow down what uh, what workplace standards should be taking place at the Whitecaps, uh, which is, I, th- I think I found a line in there where it said we, the Whitecaps wanted us to, to review that. Um, is it to exonerate the Whitecaps of wrongdoing before the public? Uh, what do you think, how do you think people should be reading this? Mm, okay, that's a mouthful of a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is, or the question, the 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 point i'm interested in is is people wanting different things out of the report and mm-hmm. and i want to give you a chance to sort of say what you think uh what in your mind the report is supposed to do mm, okay well you know thanks for asking the question it's always helpful to understand you know when you write something who are you writing it for so it's a really it's actually a great uh question andrew um, as the organization that was hired to conduct a review uh, of the processes that were employed by the Whitecaps uh, in 2008 with respect to the incident uh, that unfolded, they asked us to review uh, how well they, the process that they were using, did they actually follow the process and was that process a reasonable process at the time? So it's really important to understand the context for that. And then they also asked us uh, to review their current uh, HR practices as it relates to the hiring of coaches, both for them uh, uh, in their their, uh, their program in uh, BC, as well as they have programs across the country. So we did that. Um, and uh, the third thing that we looked at is their safe sport policies. So the primary audience for... Uh, the report, of course, is the the client who engaged us to do this. And then as part of that, uh, given the circumstances of the 2008 incident, it was really important for the client to have a, a public uh, document that they could share with the various publics to let them know what it is that this independent organization uh, determined, what, right. what, it, what it was that we were able to un- you know, in our review, uh, what we what we found, and that's so the the purpose of or you know the audience for this is uh, is really the stakeholders of the of the white cap. 
Right, and that being, you know, the the staff and then also the former players? Yeah, so the so the staff of the Whitecaps wanted a document that they could take externally, and so we produced that for them. Uh, and then in addition to that, of course, their, their most important stakeholder with respect to the 2008 uh, were the women who were playing for the organization at times, so the players. Uh, I would say another, you know, important audience was anybody who was interested in the health and and uh, state of soccer in in Canada right now, and and given the climate of sport in Canada, my sense is anybody who's interested in looking at how an organization can go through a review process, um, they can they can see a, a way that you can you can go you can manage something like this. That that makes sense. I think one thing I also wanted to ask in terms of you know the the independence of your organization. Um, is to give an answer to um, some of the reaction that I have seen online that says, well, they paid for a report that mm-hmm. would make them look good, and it makes them look good. What do you take on – what would you reply to that uh, to that reaction? Yeah. So, you know, again, these are all such important questions. What I would offer is – um, an organization, let me give you an, anal- an, an analogy because sometimes that's really helpful. Yeah. So, you know, organizations, a common practice in the financial management of an organization is to hire an independent organization to conduct a financial audit. Right. And so much like, you know, why does an organization do that? In part, they do that to be able to demonstrate that they are uh, managing the financial health of the organization to according to certain standards, and then also to invest in what we might call the trust bank um, of individuals who might be interested in the organization or looking to consume products of the organization. So that is a well-understood and established practice. And much like, you know, uh, let's say the Whitecaps hires an independent um, auditing firm to do to review their books, the same thing happens here. You know, at the SLSG, we, we've been around uh, close to 28 years now. And so we've been hired by hundreds of sport organizations on a variety of different um, projects to review their current uh, practices, whether it's with respect to safe sport and some of their HR policies. Um, in some cases, we go in and, and look at their culture, and we, we conduct an audit, if you will, of their organizational culture against values. Um, we do the same thing with professional development. So we look at, you know, what is it that their employees have to say about um, how, how um, healthy and how, uh, how um, uh, safe and welcoming their organization is against their stated values. So uh, I would offer that anybody who's kind of questioning the independency, so yes, we were paid for by our client, but as an organization who has lawyers who have to adhere to a higher code of conduct and code of ethic, our independence and our duty is to do the review to the best of our ability and in accordance with our um, our own policies and practices and code of conduct. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, what do you think you, – you talked a little bit about the trust bank, um, and I think that in general this is a part of a larger – uh, the 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 blog that had come out from the 2008 players had talked about more than one review. Um, what do you think this report achieved as a part of this broader um, issue? 
And what do you think should happen next? So can I ask a clarifying question, Andrew? Yes. So with respect to you said another review, I, I'm not sure what I, I know what you mean by that. In the, by, 2000, by in the, in the, un, in the uh, signed by 14 players uh, blog post, they mm-hmm. asked for three different reviews, one from BC Soccer, one from the Whitecaps, and one from Canada Soccer. BC oh, Soccer okay. has, has initiated their review. Obviously, this is the Whitecaps review. Um, right. What I I think that one of the first things that people are going to look at is the um, the absence of or, or I think that there's a point in sort of the report where it says the responsibility at this point transfers to Canada Soccer. Mm. Um, what do you think? This report, as a as a part of this, the call that came from those players in that 2008 blog post, what do you think this achieved for those players, and what do you think should happen next? Mm. So, you know, I can't really comment on what I think um, these players, you know, the experience that they had, I can't really comment on on what they were, are now thinking or feeling. I think it's an important question, and I would invite you to ask that of those players. So I, I'm I'm really I don't really know how to answer that question in terms okay. of how they're feeling. I can speak to you know if you have a question of me or my organization or how I hope they receive you know this this report that I can speak to. Well, I guess it's not necessarily the feelings of the, the players. What I'm as somebody that has reviewed this this situation from the the scope that you had the ability to do so, which was the Whitecaps organization. Yeah. Um. The where do you think people should turn next? Do you think it is to Canada Soccer? Okay, so that's a, a much more direct question. Thank you for that. Um, I would say it's really important for the various stakeholders in any sport organization or that governs any sport to have uh, like really intentional conversations around the complexities that are now addressed that all sport organizations are now having to face. So what you are pointing to. And I'm sure what your publics are, are experiencing is the complexity in the Canadian sports sector. So if we just look at soccer, we have the governing body, and that would be Canada Soccer. At the time, it was CSA, Canadian Soccer Association. And across the country, they have uh, various provincial and territorial governing bodies that govern the state of soccer in Ontario, sorry, in each of the provinces and territories. And the policies and procedures that each of these um, separate bodies are are not all the same because they they have to adhere to provincial legislation and jurisdiction, um, and their commitment and their uh, their what they owe in terms of their funding bodies, right, is different across the country. And then you get the layers in Ontario, for instance, where you have um, different districts. So in Ontario, we have Forgive me, I can't know the number, but I think we have probably about 14 or 15 different districts, which each have their own board of directors, and they each have their own policies and bylaws. And then you've got the clubs. And in Ontario alone, I think we have about 500 soccer clubs. So can you um, understand the quagmire that is Canadian sport? And when we look at, for instance, a coach, um, a coach would have to agree to and abide by the code of ethics of their club. And then they'd have to be in alignment, hopefully, with that of the districts. And then the, they, they would also...
also have to adhere to the code of conducts and expectations of their provincial or territorial jurisdiction. And then, doesn't stop there, then it also has to connect with the national organization. So um, maybe that's just a lesson in the complexities that is Canadian sport. <laughs> and you can multiply that, Andrew, by, you know, 70, 80 different sports across the country. So it is not a simple uh, question when you're trying to untangle a now what scenario. So, you know, back to your question, what would, might be a reasonable thing for us to expect? My sense is that the, the stakeholders, so the White Caps, which is not a provincial organization, right? It's an independent, for-profit organization yeah. that stands outside of what we would call the world that I do a lot of work in, which is the not-for-profit sector in Canadian sport. I think it would be a really important and a reasonable expectation for the governing body, in this case Canada Soccer, to be connecting with the different stakeholders, in this case, you know, the, the governing body for soccer in BC, as well as the Whitecaps, uh, perhaps even interested clubs to have a more fulsome conversation around what is it that we learned, what do we want to do with this, where do we see this going, um, how do we how do we make sense of the recommendations, for instance, that that we put into the uh, report for the Whitecaps to consider. Makes sense. What were the challenges in compiling the report for the organization? You can I yeah. understand that's a broad question, but uh, nope. but but what would you say are some were some of the the things that made this challenging? Mm-hmm. Well, it's you know I would say one of the the more interesting things when you go in for a review. So it's really important for your audience to understand that this was a review. Yeah. It wasn't an investigation, and there's a really important uh, distinction between that. So a review goes in against, you know, I would say expected standards and or existing policies and procedures and asks and examines through data collection, and then in our case, we interviewed um, the players that were interested in being interviewed along with the staff that were there at the time. I would say, that, you know, a couple of things that were made it a little bit more interesting for us is, of course, time, right? This, the incident happened in 2008 that we were asked to review. Yeah. Uh, and so now you're, you're relying on people's memories, and we speak to what we found to be the genuine, honest contribution by all of the players that we uh, interviewed, as well as the staff, we found them to be very credible in their recounting, and any mistake that might have been, you know, um, that might have been shared was a mistake of just poor memory as opposed to intent to deceive. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one, I'll call it interesting variable. The other, of course, is, uh, you know, not being able to uh, speak to the investigator that uh, was retained by the White Caps in 2008, mm -hmm. uh, and so without having an opportunity to, you know, consult with her and review any notes, uh, we were relying on people's uh, notes. So any documentation that they themselves were able to go and collect and share with us, as well as people's memories of what, um, you know, they remember having transpired in the sequencing of events. Is there a concern that the absence of the investigator weakens the report? 
So again, that's a very good question. I would say it's hard for us to know, and I answered this question to another journalist recently, uh, because we haven't seen, you know, what her what her documentation was. We we have uh, some samples of of work product that she shared. Uh, with the White Caps. What is in, in, interesting, though, is in the media they make reference to a report. To our knowledge, there was no report that was provided to the White Caps because we did not review any report following the second um, incident that came through the CSA uh, at the time and then was shared with the with the White Caps. So, uh, if there is a report out there, it, it certainly wasn't uh, shared with us. Um. That's, I recall that being a part of the early disclosing that being a part of the early sort of request from players and 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 organizations that were concerned about this. Yes, and I what I would share. So I think that the the women who came forward again to speak honestly and fully about their lived experience. I think a reasonable thing on their part would have ha- had to uh, would have been to have known that there had been some kind of finding or written documentation that would have substantiated uh, the, you know, the rationale and the reason um, why the CSA and the, and the Whitecaps ended up terminating their relationship with Coach A, is, is how we're calling the coach, mm-hmm. uh, in question. And again, to our knowledge, uh, well, based on the interviews that we did and certainly in the review of documents, there's no report that was provided to the Whitecaps by the investigator um, following the second, uh, the second issue. That's interesting. Um, one thing that I had noticed um, when I was reading some of the early blogs on the issue that I didn't notice in the report, um, from the first blog in February from Sarah McCormick, discussions mm-hmm. of uh, allegations involving the Whitecaps women's coach in 2011 – I noticed that that was not a part of the report. Mm-hmm. Was yeah, that so, considered? Sorry, and 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 because I know that uh, from reading the report, the group saw items from blog posts and other in- things that they decided on their own to to um, in- to look into. Was that one of the items? And did you, you pass on it? You're referencing to something that happened in 2011. Yes. Yeah, so you know it's really clear when you're engaged as a third party, you want to be in, you want to ensure that you are uh, you are clear on what we call scope of work. Right. So for us, our scope of work was really clear, and I've already shared that with you. Yeah. The two things that extended beyond because it came through the interviews over and over again was the incident, and that we we um, articulated here in the report, the incident dealing in 2017, mm-hmm. and then there was uh, an, another, the hiring practice of a coach. Um, and then there was some, you know, some lapse time between when they actually hired him. So they had done their, what we would call, followed their policies and done their due diligence. Lapse time, something else came to their attention or didn't come to their attention attention until after they they hired them. The reason why we uh, we looked into those is because they were cited numerous times by people that we interviewed and in the survey that we issued and so we went back to the clients and said we we believe this might be it's outside the current scope of work um it's our recommendation that we examine this uh, a little bit more so that we can test whether or not your current policies and practices are actually working the way that you are intending them to work and they agreed to us for us to to review that in more detail that makes sense and i understand what you're saying about frequency um 
but I guess that that means did, were you aware of the uh, of the content of the February twenty fifth blog post from McCormick talking about essentially I won't go over the the allegations in detail, but but there was a coach who was fired and very quickly released. So you're asking me if we are we were aware of the blog post? Yes, uh, absolutely. That was part of the documents that we reviewed. Mm-hmm. But this and was so just not was, one of the things you, you raised with the organization. I'm sorry? That was just not one of the things that was raised with the organization? Again, you know, it, it went to scope of work. So when the when we were hired, we were hired to review in particular the 2008. Mm-hmm. And then when we, we were interviewing people, we, we went back to the client to ask them whether or not we could um, deal with matters that were coming up in terms of frequency. So that that that's what... Um, uh, that's where we focused our attention. Okay. Um, did you interview Sierra McCormick? You, I understand if there is a, a, a anonymity reason why you have to say no to that. So we interviewed. What I can share with you is we interviewed. Uh, we went out to now. You're. You're. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be honest here and can't remember. But there was about 85 people that we had an opportunity to uh, let them know that we were open to having conversations with them. And 14, yep. uh, we were able to have uh, very fulsome conversations with. Okay. And and you're right. I'm not going to let you know for reasons of confidentiality, which they requested of us. And we agreed to um, extend to them. We their names have been withheld to protect uh, their identity and the integrity of the process. Um, the report finds that the Whitecaps did not attempt to cover up the incident. Is that a question that they, they that they asked you to answer? No, that's a very good question, actually, Andrew. No, they did not um, come to us with a uh, um, a list of, let's say, you know. Uh, end statement that said we want to find we want to make sure that we you know <laughs> that this report shows that we were not covering th- uh, anything up. What they asked of us, you know, and we hope we've documented well in this public report, is um, they wanted to understand whether or not the process that they used in 2008 met the expected standard at the time. And why it got a little bit confusing, of course, or interesting, is that they didn't have as they've as we've shared. Um, we didn't, they didn't have the policies and the procedures, so they did what we would, what we have shared. The next best thing is they sought out very quickly the advice of someone who did um, know uh, how to respond to these things. The advice of a, of a you know, a, an investigator as well as a lawyer who helped them navigate, you know, that process, and then also uh, helped to support the process through to the second uh, concern that was raised. Um. I know that it said that, that, as you noted, and as the report says, that they they attempted to get the information that they thought was the best way to handle it at the time. Um, but one of the the critiques of the Whitecaps has been by not either reporting to police or publicly disclosing the event, which would have been damaging to the organization. They allowed the coach to continue coaching, which had led to a second incident in 2008, and uh, and the coach continued to, to coach further than that um should while it, the report is clear that the white cap should not have sanctioned is not involved in like banning the coach or anything mm-hmm. should they have been more open and transparent about what took place mm. yeah and you know again it's so interesting eh, to go back in hindsight and and how do you 
um, how do you navigate when somebody has a complaint and they bring it forward? It's really important for that complaint to be dealt with in confidence yeah. because until you have a finding, you don't know. You're, you're taking the, you know, the complaint at face value. You're inviting an open and transparent environment, right? And again, in 2008, they didn't have those policies clearly in place so that both the, the players, the women who are on the team, as well as the, uh, you know, conceivably the coach and the, and the staff didn't really know what to do when, once this complaint came forward. And so um, what I would offer is it's incredibly important uh, in for today in you know in today's standard for people to know very clearly um, what is a phone there's a, a another phone call coming in um, <laughs> what are the standards so what are the codes of conducts and behaviors that I, I uh, ought to be doing right and what are the things that I should not be doing so we speak a lot and extensively about the things that you ought not be doing um, and we hope that that reduces the number of complaints. When a complaint is filed, it is incredibly important for that to be treated in confidence. So you can feel the, the tension between, you know, the complaint being um, received, we're, we're getting external support by, by someone that um, has training in this area. Uh, the Whitecaps did, uh, you know, based on our findings, uh, they they. They made an assumption that the coach was going to do some training, right? We called it sensitivity training, uh, and that, you know, they, they, we also found, though, that not enough oversight was provided to ensure that he was actually um, uh, listening. You know, he was actually embodying the sensitivity training that was asked of him, and so Moving forward, if we were looking at today's standard, um, there, are, there are certain measures that we would um, have put in place, including after the second complaint and upon the termination of the, um, of the coach, to have a, you know, a better communication with the athletes to be able to speak to some of the process, some of the lessons learned. Uh, if this were to happen again, here's the process. Um, it, making sure that the athletes have voice. This is a really important part now. We are recommend, recommending, in fact, advocating for athletes to be able to, on a yearly basis, speak to um, did the coach provide uh, a safe, welcoming learning environment for them to train and compete in? Did the coach, you know, adapt her style so that uh, he or she could, you know, connect with the athletes at an individual level? beyond just being a team is is a coach showing uh, their individual capacity to be emotionally intelligent, for instance, right? So that is much newer things. If we go back 12 years, it, there, none of these things were, were really in place. And, and that's why we're seeing, we're seeing coaches now being held to certain uh, code of conduct violations, you know, um, that uh, that were perhaps more rampant 10, 10, 12 years ago than they are today. That's, I think, the, the final question, because I, I, I don't want to keep you too long. The final question I kind of want to ask is, you've mentioned that a lot of the things have already been cleared up, but I know that 2019 has been, uh, both in Canadian and American sports, a time of, you know, a lot of discovery of things that happened in the past. Are sports 
at both at the youth and professional level safer now than they were then? Or is there still lots of work to do? I, you know, it's, it depends on how you define safety, right? For me, safety is not just physical safety. Yeah. Right? So there's the, are, are, are there things and measures that we're doing today that are addressing the physical safety of athletes? Absolutely. I can give you one, you know, example around concussion, for instance. Three, four years ago, Andrew, right? What would we say to an athlete who suffered, you know, a blow to the head? Come on. Right. Just get back up, right? Toughen up. Now the measures, the return to play protocols, you know, coaches and community levels are much more sensitive to uh, what they, what the return to play protocols are. And and so I would say, from a physical safety point of view, I think we're we're doing far more, and we are much more aware now uh, than we were, I would say, a decade ago. In terms of, you know, let's call it the emotional safety of athletes, uh, I think we have considerable room to grow. And so part of what I do personally as an interval coach, I work with uh, coaches and athletes and leaders, sport executives, to help them build emotional uh, intelligent capacity so that they can recognize a range of emotions that's coming up. For instance, you know, someone who I would say has tremendous emotional intelligence is John Herdman. Mm. Why? Because, you know, I know John a little bit. What I can tell you, having worked with some of the members of the current national team, they will tell you that he makes them feel um, like they're the most important person in the room. And he has a roster of 18 to 22 athletes who each feel under his uh, careful stewardship, I would say, that they are an, a unique individual and he has found a way to connect with them to unleash their individual uh, potential. When you have a coach uh, who is working at that level of emotional capacity who can help an athlete feel seen, heard, and valued, imagine the exponential effect that that can have on the team. So, for me, you know, on my wish list is, and I'm working with a number of national team coaches, primarily female, and I wanted to work with more male coaches, is to um, be able to, to give them some language around what are the emotions that are arising with you, within you. Are you aware of what happens to you physiologically when your, your team has just had a, a goal scored against it? Because if you're not emotionally aware and intelligent, you're likely to yell something out that you may not even be aware that you're yelling. So for me, a high hope is that we become more emotionally intelligent as coaches, as executives, as athletes, so that we are better able to make uh, good decisions, not only on the pitch, you know, on the ice, in the pool, but beyond it. Because, you know, what I'll, I'll leave you with is sport is a playing ground where people come together, hopefully, you know, as neighbors and they leave as friends. Every Paralympic athlete and Olympic athlete and professional athlete, they get their initiation in a community across this country. And who is serving as the stewards of sport and community sport? Their parents, their volunteers who are well-intentioned but often are lacking, I would say, the emotional capacity to be able to know, how do I actually talk to this little human being in a way that helps them ignite their desire to try more, as opposed to, you know, shrink 
because I didn't, you know, I didn't do, I made a mistake on the field of play. So my high hope is that, you know, we, we start to uh, review the field of play, much like we have the, um, the, the school system, and recognize that we have professionals in the school system that know how to not only teach the ABCs and the one, two, threes, but can help to, to create, um, you know, an imagination that can help uh, that they see this little student and see beyond about where they can go. My high hope for sport is that we do the same. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. And that was Dina Bell LaRoche. Uh, Nick, what did you think of that interview? I thought, I mean, I thought it was, it was really great. Um, I appreciated the directness of the questions just to kind of clear the air about a few things. Um, or, well, not maybe clear the air, but get some clarity on what, you know, what exactly the intention behind the report was and what the scope of it was. I think that's a thing that's been missing. Um, for me is that the communication around what exactly the report was, what it would include and what it would do has largely been absent and having enough experience with large organizations. I know that there's sometimes limited like practical application of a report like this without really understanding clear and specific goals and the scope and sort of what might come next from it. So it was good to hear that sort of laid out so that I could better understand the context of the report. It was really interesting to talk about. I, I think that there are limitations and I think that some of the limitations um, are the history of it because ultimately the focus of did they do the best that they could at the time? Um, we, I guess it is a little bit comforting to know that, you know, that they, the essential um, effect of, of what the report is trying to say is that they did try. Um, but there is a lot to learn from what happened. And I and think it, that I think that some of it, as, as much as they say that some of the policies has, have been, the policies have been implemented since 2008, I think that there are some things about how it unfolded this year that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that shows that they still have lessons to learn from what they learned in terms of the um, the communication, because that was a big part yeah. of the report was that, that the communication with the players left them feeling unclear about the process. Um, and the, uh, and, and it didn't really feel like that had improved in 2019. Um, and and mm-hmm. ultimately that is the nature of what the 2019 conflict is, is that mm-hmm. people felt uh, specifically, the players felt like there was going to be a different, the, the, not just the, the, the coach was going to get fired, but the coach was going to not coach again, or the, the, rev, the resolution was not what the players thought was going to happen. And I think that there's a lot of discrepancy in terms of, you know, you have players talking about the, the fact that they, you know, were assured, where they were given these assurances, um, we haven't been, nobody has talked to the investigator. Um, the, as you heard in the interview, there is no, nobody's found a copy of the report. Mm-hmm. If a report or evidence, the report was made. Um, and I think that those are the and, seeds that have brought us to where we are in 2019. 
Yeah, and so this report that's referenced, just to be clear for the listeners, we're referring to a report here that was done by the Whitecaps themselves or was done earlier? Right. Okay, so in 2008, they hired right. uh, an ombudsperson an in, the, in this, in the 2019 report, it's referred to as an investigator mm-hmm. who interviewed the key people at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had always been the Whitecaps's... Um, it had been the Whitecaps' position that that investigator made no recommendations. We we hear from the the 2019 review that there was no report. Or at least report that they saw. Yes. And so that's very interesting and something that you want to know. And it's, I feel like a case like this is always going to have unanswered questions and the absence of that investigator is a problem. I, really, I recognize a little bit of the complexity of the issue in, in, in terms of like what happens next and who's, who was in charge of, of processing the information that came mm-hmm. out of the two, that, that came out of the initial 2008 reviews. But, you know, they fired this coach ultimately, like maybe the, the best thing to say, you know, if you're, if you're not necessarily happy with what happened and, and what the club's response was, regardless of what the, 2018 20, 2008 standards for reviewing this kind of situation were i think mm-hmm. you fired a coach you didn't say why you fired a coach there was a potential that that created and the way that that was handled um left the coach open to continue coaching and we know that there were two incidences in 2008 that we see through this report mm-hmm. um and so regardless of what the standards are i think that I would say that, like, I would never want to see it handled that way. Again, if, yeah. if, if, if we're, if we're taking lessons, like what happens the next time this happens? If you fire a coach because of, regardless of what the, the thorny liabilities of, of, of making an allegation are, if you're firing a coach because of sexual misconduct, I think you gotta say it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's all well and good to say that we're, you know, 2008 was a different time. Sure, fine. But nobody is debating that. Um, I think a sticking point for you and I has largely been the communication that's happened this year around this and the dealing of the issue. It's it's fine to say, okay, well, in 2008, the club did this, this, and this, and we found no evidence of cover-up. For me, the interesting thing about this whole report was also the way that the Whitecaps really did the press release for the report, um, which I want to be very clear on is separate from the report itself. That is an independent report that happened um, that took place that I think it was like over 350 people that they spoke to. So this is a very extensive report that was done and investigation. Some of the kind of like unresolved feeling I guess I have is that the way in which it was released was it's kind of a the Whitecaps frame it as sort of this pat on the back and that really you know they talk about there's numerous recommendations that were made by the SLSG to advance the Whitecaps efforts in safe sport Um, and they reference the section of the report where those are in the only thing that really comes out here is for the Whitecaps admitting anything really is sort of we can express our sincere regret and empathy to the brave women who came forward to share their experiences and to all who were affected and this to me just sounds like such an (laughs) what does that actually mean 
Like mm-hmm. regret is not, is, is like a classic marketing term that's used to, to like, there's no blame being accepted there or, you know, and we have empathy to the brave women who came forward. Um, and then just goes into this athletes must be provided an environment where they are safe, secure, free from any form of bullying harassment. And great. That's fine. But that, that's something that the club has said since 2008. <laughs> um, and then at the end of it, they have about the SLSG and a nice little thing that just says independent third party that was created in 1992 has been offering legal and risk management services and leadership development to hundreds of sports organizations across Canada from community-based to nation national level programming. Great. That's important to know. I'm glad the club included that. And then they have this weird thing at the bottom that's about Vancouver Whitecaps FC. And the first line is the Vancouver Whitecaps FC purpose is to unite and inspire its communities. And then this sort of just weird thing about their interest in youth development. I'm like, why is this present in this press release? Well, the reason why is because it, this whole situation litigates the presence of like, like, I guess we've always talked about the academies as like a, a purely sports thing. How can the Whitecaps get a leg up in MLS or inspiring other teams to have the MLS? But we not haven't necessarily until now, like, regulated like or you know graded how the white caps actually perform as a youth academy you know like we almost mm-hmm. we, we rate it on first team results as opposed to is there you know is it safe is it good does do players leave happier and, and healthier and better than they were before yeah um and and clearly the white caps would like to leave this hoping that people, you know, are, are more, have more trust in them now that they've, they've gone through this process. Um, but I, I would say that that reputation is hugely at stake here. Absolutely. And ultimately for me it is like, it's, I still feel like the organization is treating this like I'm not convinced that the leadership at the Whitecaps is not seeing this still as a PR problem rather than a safety issue in, in terms of how this report was released by the club and how they were very quick to sort of point out, like, see, there was no cover up, um, but there's been some recommendations. We're going to take those on. You know, they do say um, that they're, you know, they're working with other organizations to try to continue to improve things, but it, it's just all a little bit vague for me. And, and so that was sort of something that I think I was left with thinking about in the interview too, that I, I think you did ask Dina was about, so now what, like, what does this achieve? How do, how do we move forward? And for me, the big question is how does the white caps repair the trust that was lost? That is, I think the, the, the issue of this trust bank is, mm-hmm is a big is a big part of it. I think that the and it goes to something that has been a part of this issue and has been a part of other problems that have gone on with the white caps, which is like 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 is this an organization that people feel like they can support with mm-hmm. with what has happened in the past? I am heartened to hear that a reviewer did feel that they like tried they 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 tried their best. I am mm-hmm heartened to hear that they do regret and have, you know, taken the 
the steps in the past to try and the the steps to try and account for how hurtful that situation was. Um, I really do. One of the things that you hear about in the report is that like one of the issues in 2008 was like that they did sensitivity training, but there was no like actual measurement of follow up on whether or not that sensitivity sensitivity training was um, acted on or whether or not it worked. And I feel like that's Mm -hmm. the same. I don't know. There's a lot of recommendations here. And maybe the thing that you really have to do is, is hold the club accountable to those recommendations. Um, Mm -hmm. And and see like what happens next. There was the, the response from, um, Kara McCormick, who had written the original blog was crucial to note that the review was paid for by them, misleading to say independent third party review without making that clear. It's just like a, a study being done on if soda was bad for health, resulting no and not revealing Coke mm. paid for it. Well, we've, we've talked about that a little bit already. And then in the next tweet, she says, a huge positive is that it's clear there is a need for a third party reporting, investigating a body in Canada. Yeah. Um, and she says, if it goes on to say, if this report was done, I want to take the results seriously. With the good re- good news is there's enough concrete evidence with info release people can decide for themselves. Is the is the response of at least one player that was, was uh, taken on by, or, you know, that had seen this. I think that the, the presence of the in one of the recommendations that the first point of contact be independent, I think is huge because I think that yeah. this was a big issue in 2008 because they just didn't know how to reply. They didn't know how to respond to it. And I don't know if maybe like that is a bigger point that maybe it's been made is that they were running this youth program at that time and they had no idea what to do in a situation yeah. like this. And they, they shared responsibility with the CSA and the CSA Canadian Soccer Association still has responsibility for what happens next. Yeah. Um, but the, I think that you measure whether or not this process meant anything by whether or not they actually start being better. Yeah. And that's, and that's where I'm really curious to see is, is sort of from this report, the kind of what is the club going to do now and how are they going to communicate with the public about it? Because I I understand the reasons why a, a thorough um, investigation report needed to happen, and and that delayed it. But it was interesting that the club, as far as I saw, didn't communicate that at any point because the report was due in September, and at, for the three months that the investigation and report continued to be developed, it was just interesting to me that the club didn't communicate that that's what was going on. When, for me, if I'm just putting myself in, like, the PR shoes, why wouldn't you try to build some goodwill and just say, like, you know, the report is big, we're talking to lots of people, it's going to be late. Um, And those are the reasons why. Rather than just kind of say nothing and wait until the report does come out and then say, well, here's the reason why the report is late. To me, that's just such a small thing that it really doesn't inspire a lot of confidence moving forward. And I mean, call me cynical, but I, I agree there needs to be concrete steps shown that something has changed. And that's the piece that we've yet to see. The caps. And, you know, hope, hopefully it will come. The caps have, have like the, this is the issue about the trust bank is that this happened. I think that a lot of people in, in some of the steps that, that have been taken in the past, the fact that 
we now see that John Furlong, um, who was the executive chair, has left the club. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that there was concern. He's retired officially. There was concern at the time. He was the, uh, he was the subject of allegations, um, that resulted in several action and then also a defamation suit from him. Mm-hmm. All of them were canceled. And, and people questioned yeah. the club for not, you know, asking him to, um, not be on the board for a while while that was happening. Um, I think that that is something else that's been in the trust bank. And the, I, I, I think that to win back some of the goodwill that's happened, it's just the proactive, a proactive way of dealing with these things. It and has felt really well. reactive and, 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 yeah. and not, it has felt reactive and it hasn't always felt transparent. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Transparency is a, a better word is a bit proactive and transparent is definitely, I mean, we know too, that's sort of the industry standard for dealing with these things that to try to treat them like PR problems and sweep them under the rug um, and I'm talking again about the communication and the response to the allegations in in this year. Um, the club again has really been way far off the mark, and I think received some very bad advice. If indeed they sought advice prior to this report being conducted, um, and so yeah, for me, I'd I'd hope that there there is more proactive and transparent communication and action being taken moving forward. Um. Yeah, I think that the, we'll just have reviews on, we'll, we'll have reviews on every, uh, successive scandal about whether or not they asked for advice before they did, <laughs> before oh, they did gosh, things yeah. people yelled yeah. at them for. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it, and it's also like really, I mean, part of my ongoing frustration just comes from this report never would have happened without the actions of supporters groups and the players involved at the time of the allegations. So it's still to me like, a, you know, you don't get to, to pat yourself on a, on the back as an organization. And I get that they, they're saying we have more work to do, but I guess I'm curious to know what is that work? When will it happen and whose responsibility is it? And I'd like to see that actually written out and be more concrete than just the sort of what feels quite vague and open promise to do better from the I, club. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how they respond. I also want, you know, the, something that I think of a lot is, is the, the, the complexity in patchwork of all yeah. of the, of, of, of governance relating to because this is to soccer in Canada and to sports broadly in Canada and and it's going to take national level leadership to oh totally to fix that totally and it's also and something in, fa- that, in fairness so I just want to say like and in fairness it's not all on the club right yeah like there's there's clear need for a much higher level and more um, cohesive approach to this in Canada and in, in North America. And that's not solely on mm-hmm. the Whitecaps organization. You'd think that considering their, um, they consider themselves such leaders in the soccer scene, especially with youth development, 
that they could really help um, take this as an opportunity to maybe push some of the higher level bodies or push for more cohesive bodies to make sure that this thing doesn't happen. And there are uh, clear guidelines at the top. Yeah. And it was just, it's, I don't know if, I don't think this should be the, the, the closing chapter for the white caps, but it absolutely puts a lot of, um, it puts a lot out there of what was like really a, a horrifying time for people that played for Canada and played for the white caps in the Jersey. And it, it, I still just, you know, reading the report, just think of my just uh, shocked that this was able to happen at all. Yeah. Yeah. Until next week, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at that's so MLS. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We will continue to do bi-weekly shows through the off-season, which feels like it's rapidly coming to an end. And uh, where can we find you online? You can find me online on Twitter at TeamBates, www.team-baits.com. Um, I'm an editor for Howler Magazine, whatahowler.com. Uh, and yeah, please rate, review, and subscribe. Wonderful. Until next time, don't get sent off. I won't do it.